Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 123, Dharma Music Can Sound Like Anything. This week we speak with Buddhist-inspired musician Ravena Michelson about what it means to make Dharma music our own. At the end of the interview, she shares one of her beautiful songs with us. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Hello, Buddhist geeks. Coming at you again from Boulder, Colorado. And we're in my studio tonight. Today, how about... What day What? What day is this? What time is this right now? I don't know. But Vince Horn is here with me, and that makes everything okay. <laughs> yeah, and we're also joined today by someone who's calling in from New Haven, Connecticut. And we're on the phone today with Ravena Michelson. Hi, Ravena. Hi. Hi, guys. It's good to have you with us. We heard a lot about you from our mutual friend, Danny Fisher. And we saw that um, he recently wrote an article in Tricycle Magazine about your music called Mindful Music. So we thought it'd be cool to catch up with you and talk to you about your music. Thanks. Well, I'm a big fan, especially of your little icon with the glasses. <laughs> Thank you. And just a little bit of background on Ravenna. She is a singer-songwriter. She was actually classically trained as a, a cello musician. What do you call a cellist? A cellist. Hey, there we go. And recently early 2000s turned singer-songwriter, and now you're producing, you produce a couple albums. The first was called Dharma Song, and the second, which recently released, is called Bloom. And you're also a Shambhala practitioner, and you study with uh, Sakyam Mipam Rinpoche, so he's well-known here around Boulder yeah. and, and uh, definitely appreciated around here. Then jumping in a little bit to your actual music, I was struck when I went to your website, ravennam.com, the tagline is Dharma music can sound like anything. And when I listened to the third album, Bloom, I really <laughs> was struck by that, that there were, there was a lot of lyrics and a lot of meaning behind the songs, which seemed Dharmic and related to Dharma teachers and Dharma themes. And yet the genre or like the type of song really reminded me of like folk and, and bluegrass and different kinds of genres. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why Dharma music can sound like anything and what that means. You know, it's a risk of kind of moving into translation issues. I think it's a little bit important that as a convert community, we recognize that Dharma doesn't just mean what comes out of our chosen teacher's mouth or that Buddhism doesn't just refer to a very small set of rituals and beliefs that actually when you step back, Dharma has been translated as everything from that which holds us back from non-virtuous actions to the truth, the truth of reality, the teachings of the truth. And then Buddhism kind of refers to a whole mess of things that if you step back and, you know, if someone gave you the opportunity to travel all around the Buddhist world over the last 2,500 years, I think we would all be shocked at what's been included under the rubric of quote-unquote Buddhism. And so when I said, oh, darn, it can sound like anything, that was trying to me being a little bit playful and kind of trying to poke people and say, so you thought it would sound like this? Well, guess what? It can all sound like this a little bit. And 
And that's in part why I did uh, two versions of the song that Nipa Mamche um, has made a set to music, Just a Seed Waiting to Grow. I did this very, like, dreamy and kind of sun-drenched version with cellos and voices and reverb up the wazoo. And then I did a just straight-up pop version that sounds like maybe early breeders if in my wildest dreams. I think it's important that we don't get like too attached to whatever our idea of Dharma is mm. or whatever our, our idea of music is. I mean, I'm, I'm sure your parents at a certain point maybe said, you know, you're music these days or that's not music. How many times have we heard in the last maybe, maybe it was uh, more in the 80s, early 90s that people would say, you know, rap isn't music. And today, of course, we accept, you know, hip hop and rap as completely part of the musical landscape of the United States. And so this is just kind of poking people a little bit to say, well, can it sound like anything? Or is it supposed to sound a certain way? I'm not talking about content, but just in terms of sound. One of the movements that I am really interested in, and I love watching documentaries about and listening to is gospel music. And there was so much struggle with a lot of earlier gospel musicians about whether they could do secular music, but still bring that kind of devotional gospel feel to it. And I don't know if that question has necessarily been resolved since we still have this genre that's called gospel. And then we have non-gospel music, but this question has been around for forever, I think. Yeah. And and then there's the whole thing of Christian rock becoming really popular, which is connected (laughs) with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I will admit that I don't think I've ever heard Christian rock that I was aware of. I mean, as a classically trained musician, holy mackerel, you know, you play a whole bunch of Mozart Requiems and Vivaldi Glorias, and that's some of the most, to me, beautiful music in the world, or Bach cantatas, and those are all, you know, in praise of God and the Lord and Jesus Christ, and I mean, if that's not kind of religious music, but today we don't necessarily identify it very overtly as Christian music. We identify it as classical music. Well, yeah. Well, one thing I love that you're doing is you're a Tibetan practitioner and you're aware of the art integration with the teachings, you know, the paintings and music. It's a very big part of practice and and the path. And so I think it's great that a musician like yourself is you're creating music in the Western context because we don't have that, that much of it actually so far. That's one thing that's kind of, for me, been lacking as a musician and myself that I want to hear more expressions that are, that are taking roots from the Tibetan culture, but are uniquely our own. Or not even, you know, Tibetan culture, but just overall any Buddhist culture, because obviously, you know, (laughs) all these places are convert places, although they converted, you know, thousand years ago, you know, 2000 years ago. But I felt very strongly when I, um, when I met Nipa Rinpoche, I mean, I totally fell in love, but one of the reasons I fell in love is that he spoke English Mm -hmm. in a way that, in a way that I speak English, he made, jokes, play, I make jokes. There was so much identification that I, I felt that a lot of the exoticism that I had seen in other Buddhist situations dropped away. Because I had spent time in Bodh Gaya, you know, trying to learn about the origins of Buddhism, you know, years before I met Nipam Rinpoche. And so I had seen a lot of kind of, oh my God, it's a human being draped in like saffron cloth. I must go like lick their feet without <laughs> any understanding of 
well, you know, what did virtue is that just happens to be what he's wearing today? Like what's going on? And then to meet me, Pamukke, who is this combination of incredible practitioner, but also, you know, he spent majority of his life in, in the West. And, mm. and so when I set out to do music, well, when he actually kind of like nudged me or kind of punched me in the kidneys to go do music, this type of music, it didn't really occur to me to be like, okay, now I've got to learn some crazy Asian languages <laughs> because because that's what Buddhism is. It, you know, to me, no, not so much. Right. For the record, I wish I did know. <laughs> I wish I were fluent in all those languages, but not that I'd write music in them. Right. So a few of your songs directly relate to uh, some famous Tibetan women and practitioners and teachers like Machik Labdron and Yeshe Tsogyul. So could you say a little bit about the songs that you wrote uh, and about these women? Sure. Machik Labdron is this just incredible Tibetan female practitioner. And she she lived around, she's actually a contemporary of Milarepa. She's a little bit younger, so that's uh, 11th and 12th centuries in Tibet. And some consider her to be the founder of the Mahamudra Chud lineage, which is this particular lineage of practice that deals with cutting through these particular four demons, kind of the biggest and the scariest demon being that of ego. And, I mean, you've talked to, already, you've talked to some of the great Western experts on Machik uh, and should um, but in Sarah Harding and then um, Social Maliani is the one that really brought Machik's story to the West in her book Women of Wisdom where she translated her Namtar or sacred biography mm-hmm. and uh, I just became pretty much obsessed with Machik I had a there was something about her story the fact that you know she had this miraculous birth you know yawn I can't relate to that um, but then she went on and through her own achievements became this really remarkable practitioner. She goes on and she develops this system of teachings and she ends up debating with 500 panditas sent from Bodh Gaya because they say, well, listen, at this point, all the Buddhist Dharma has come from India and now you're saying that there's Buddhist Dharma coming from Tibet. Uh, we don't know if we buy this. Then she beats them and wins them all over and she has a concert and she has three kids and then she takes off to do retreat and her story is just ridiculous and she lived to be 99 years old and Machig sang a lot. I have no idea how well her story or her songs were preserved. I'm not sure that's knowable, but we have songs that are purported to be sung by Machig Lovedrun. So I've written a couple of songs about her. One is called Machig and that's on Blam and that's just this really, like, I was really heartbroken. My fiancé had left me. I was a puddle of tears and dismay, and I had just dropped out of my graduate program. And so I was just wondering, Machik, did you ever have any regrets? Basically, did you ever regret leaving your husband and kids to go to a retreat? Did you ever regret, you know, whatever, whatever? That's the refrain, Machik, Labdran, did you ever have any regrets? And then the other song's called Adrin, and that's kind of reciting her name. She was called many different names throughout her life. And then interspersed with the kind of calling out of her names, which is, you know, very devotional, calling the guru from afar activity. I use a kind of an adapted refrain from her final song where she talks about the, the supreme view, uh, supreme meditation, supreme activity, 
every time I do a concert and I sing those songs, I don't do them at every concert, I always talk about her and talk about her life story and try to get people enthusiastic about learning about some of our great female practitioners, some of our lineage mothers. Yeah, that that seems like something that is really necessary and needed considering that so many women that are interested in Buddhism don't have a ton of people like that to look to and say, hey, what does this look like when a woman wakes up and isn't during the awakening process? Like, how does that actually manifest? So I think that's just beautiful. And I think the more we, we study, we find that actually there are a whole bunch of these women, but their stories weren't, mm-hmm. A, recorded as well or thoroughly, or their stories were only passed down to, you know, maybe their female descendants. And so you have to end up at that particular tiny monastery, uh, nonary X, Y, and Z, and to discover the story. And also, frankly, in our culture, it's almost considered a sin to be a single woman who doesn't have children. And so there's something in Machig choosing to leave her married state or her consort state with Topabhadra, who was her chosen consort partner, uh, and choosing to leave her kids. That is just so completely conception breaking and mind blowing. Because today we consider that almost like a crime to like leave your kids and family. And she chose to go off and do a retreat. Right, similar Mati to the was a tough cookie. <laughs> yeah, similar similar to the Buddha who did essentially this. Yes, we're told the same yes, thing. Exactly, and you know you still hear people who really get fired up. You know, the Buddha left his infant child and his wife and. And people ask me that. I'm like, I, you know, I can't answer that. I, but, you know, theoretically, there are things that are, dare I say it, more important than family. Interesting. Well, we'll see if we get a lot of, we'll get some interesting emails about that, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and I'm not even, I don't know if I, I guess I believe that. I, I guess, I guess I do. I mean... I'm not married. I don't have kids. And part of me is terrified of that idea because I love being able to pick up and go on retreat. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to end this conversation. It seemed like it'd be a shame not to let people hear a bit of your music. So we wanted to end with this beautiful song from Dharma song called Kiki Soso. And before we go into that, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about the song and kind of what's the significance of it for you. It's based on the chant that's done both in parts of Tibetan culture and particularly in Chimbala Buddhism, Kiki Soso Ashe La Jelo Taksan Kinjuk Diarke. And this is a chant that's done in short to raise your winged horse or your lungta. And I guess the way I tend to explain it in context is this is confidence in your true nature. This is confidence utterly beyond any sense of aggression. This is confidence not based on how thin you are or how rich you are or how much you adore your boyfriend or your boyfriend adores you or blah, 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 blah. That's completely missing the point. This is confidence based, you know, on that completely stainless, birthless, deathless nature that we all get or have. And I did it this normally it's done kiki, so so, ashe. But I set this more to kind of like a galloping horse rhythm. Kiki, so, so, asha, no, no, taksin, kim, okay. And and then I layered it on up. So there are, I think, seven voices. 
And then I, I'm a little obsessed, you can tell, with calling the guru's name from afar. So Gawe Dorje is one of the names Mipangamche, I guess, was called as a child. So that's the name that I'm calling. Gawe Dorje. And then, and then it uh, shifts into the second part of the song, which is the refrain, I ride on your wind. And that's based on the idea that whenever you study with a qualified teacher, you're in part riding on the wind of their blessings. That I don't know if you guys have ever had the experience where you go and you receive a teaching from somebody and you're like, yeah, yeah, okay, I, I get that. And then like 15 minutes later when it's all over, you're like, wait a minute, what am I supposed to do? I don't, what? I'm confused. And part of that, they say, is is the blessings coming through that kind of their understanding ex- extended to you. And then on top of that, I just sang what was on my mind, which was my continual issue, which is that I didn't listen to what you had to say. I didn't listen. I will try. I've never felt like I actually have been able ever to listen or follow the Buddhist teachings, although I, I try. Trying failure. So that's that's sort of what the whole song is about. It's like a um, a confidence, heartbreak, falling in love, failure trying song. <laughs>
Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.